0: This is episode number 305 How to Finally Make Behavior Change Work For You with PhD Michelle Seeger. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well being. And I'm your host, Sonia.
1: changing any behavior outside of the context of our crazy hectic lives and to do so is really to set individuals up for failure it's to set organizations up for failure because you know the hubbub that our behaviors have to survive within on a daily basis is a part of the behavior change process and so we need to think about that as we think about why are we going to get people curious how do we persuade them that this is something that is deserving of their curiosity and attention.
0: Behavior change is one of my favorite topics. It is something that I coach about as a health coach myself. It is something that I write about. And generally human behavior is fascinating to me because we are such complicated animals and there is a lot to know. I've had a lot of guests on about behavior change, so if you enjoyed this topic and you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out the show notes to listen to other behavior change experts like Katie Milkman, like James Clear, like Gretchen Rubin, and also check out some of my solo episodes. There's a reason why there are many books and many experts on behavior change, and it's because there is no one-size-fits-all approach. And also, it requires you to constantly be thinking about it and be revisiting the topic because it's not something that is very easy, especially whenever a lot of things in our lives are designed to make us take the path of least resistance. And the things that we want in our lives or the changes we want to make often mean that we have to do a little bit of work to get there. And today's guest, Michelle Seeger, is no different. She is an incredible expert. She is the director of the University of Michigan's Sports, Health, and Activity Research and Policy Center, advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services, and chair of the United States National Physical Activity Plans Communication Committee, also author of the book, the joy choice, which just came out. She is an NIH funded researcher and has three decades of experience studying how people adopt healthy behaviors in ways that can survive the complexity and unpredictability of the real world. So Michelle has a lot going for her. She has a lot of great information that is going to be impactful in this podcast episode. She's also the author of the book, no sweat, which is used to train professionals in health coaching and patient counseling. Her doctorate PhD is in psychology, and she has a master's in health and behavior and health education, a master's in kinesiology, and fellowships in translational research and healthcare policy from the University of Michigan. So Michelle is backed by a lot of data, a lot of experience, and her book, The Joy Choice, is fantastic, and I highly recommend that you pick it up. In this episode, Michelle and I talk about how to break down all or nothing thinking, because a lot of us do think in terms of all or nothing, and how to cultivate in-the-moment decisions that support self-care, health, and well-being. And I'll give you a little secret. It involves curiosity and asking yourself questions. Michelle has some really helpful tools that you'll hear about. One that is notable is the POP decision tool, so you'll hear that. And it's what to do if you made a plan to do something and then it doesn't go to plan, because how often does that happen? That happens a lot. I will get out of the way so that you can listen to this episode. But first, I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. I've been using Inside Tracker since 2017, and they offer ultra personalized suggestions and a science backed action plan so that you can optimize your health. If you haven't heard of Inside Tracker, you might be asking, well, how does it work? And step one is to get your blood tested. So there's different plans that allow you to go to a lab to get your blood tested. Or if you're in Canada, like me, you can have home blood testing done. So someone comes to your house and that's also available in the US. And then you fill out a detailed personal profile about your lifestyle, nutrition, your habits and your preferences. And then Inside Tracker takes your blood work and they look at over 40 biomarkers to give you personalized and science backed recommendations to fit your body's needs to improve on those reference ranges to feel your best. You can set a goal on what you're looking to do with health and performance optimization, things like improving your endurance or your heart health or your sleep and many others. And then you can do another blood test three months later and see if the lifestyle and diet changes that you're making are moving those reference ranges and seeing your results can be really motivating. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all of the tests that they offer. I like the ultimate test because you get all of the data that you could possibly want. And you can use this podcast episode in order to make some of those behavior changes that you want to do in order to improve on those reference ranges of the biomarkers that need a little bit of work. Inside Tracker looks at biomarkers that are way more complex and detailed than you would get if you went to the doctor just to get a complete blood count. They look at things like C-reactive protein, they look at things like vitamin D, give you a full lipid panel, and also look at hormone health. So I highly recommend it. Go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off and let me know what you think. And on the topic of behavior change, if you are subscribed to my weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.comslash newsletter, you probably see my articles on performance and well being and how to essentially be the best version of yourself. If you're not on the list, make sure you get there. Go to sonyalooney.comslash newsletter so that you can get in on all of this extra content and research that I am bringing to you. If you want a little bit more mountain bike related content, make sure you go to my Instagram. I am at sonyalooney on Instagram. I post mostly mountain biking and family stuff on there, and I'd love to connect with you there as well. Okay, let's get into today's episode with Michelle Seeger. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so fun to get to talk to somebody who's so well-versed in behavior change, and you have so many credentials behind your name with your PhD and your master's and these books that you've written. Thanks. Well, you know, I... I love what I do and I keep
1: wanting to learn more and, and then share with other people what I've learned. Where did your curiosity and behavior change start? It started, you know, it's fun. I've been telling this story for a long time and I said, it starts in 1994, but kind of officially it started in 1993 when we started a randomized trial with cancer survivors we were looking to see if exercise could help them reduce depressive and anxiety symptoms, and these are folks who weren't recently treated. They were about four and a half years on average out of um, treatment, so they were, you know, busy normal people living their lives. And thankfully, they enrolled in our study, and we, you know, gave them gave the randomized group the con- the treatment group about I don't know ten to twelve weeks of exercise. And the other group, we didn't. Um, And we found what we were looking for from the pre-to-post measures, which was that the people who exercise benefited psychologically. But part of our study design was to call everyone back three months later and talk to them and do focus groups and analyze the qualitative data. And you know, I remember sitting around talking to people. They were smiling and laughing. And I thought, oh my, we didn't just do good research. We helped them live their lives better but I was wrong. We discovered, you know, after the smiles and the talking that almost everyone had stopped exercising when our study had ended. And, you know, that word curious, that was, I was very curious, like, why would you stop exercising? And they told me they were busy. They had to work. They had families, they had aging parents, they had this, that, and the other. And when I realized that these people hadn't stopped exercising because they were ca- because they were cancer survivors, but because they were busy adults living their lives, I thought, "Wow! If people who faced a life-threatening illness don't feel comfortable or know how to continuously prioritize their own self-care through behaviors like exercise, then we have a real problem in society." And I was like, "Bling! Light bulb moment!" This is my problem and I'm going to solve it. And so everything I've done since that time, which was almost 30 years ago, has been in service of understanding what gets an individual's ways of sustaining healthy lifestyles. And then most importantly, what does the science say? What does the science change? Because it changes over time, right? Right. What do we know about how to help people overcome their barriers to sustaining a behavior like exercise, healthy eating, meditation, you name it.
0: Yeah. And it also seems like a lot of times people's greatest motivator is pain. So if something happens to them, then they're going to feel more motivated to take on a behavior to work, to make that better. So like if you're going to the physical therapist, because something hurts, you might, start with doing those exercises because you want to get better. But then once you feel better, you just stop doing the things that you need to do in order to get better. Or same with like weight loss, like you might lose some weight and then you just go right back to what you were doing before.
1: Or you leave your doctor's office and they admonish you because you're in pre-diabetes. And so, you know, I often, people often think that those types of situations get people motivated and they do. They get people really motivated. The problem is, it's not the kind of motivation that's going to keep it going. So, that's really the problem is that, in fact, it, it speaks to our whole system of behavior change within healthcare. And in most places, that's what people think they need. I need to lose weight. I need to get healthier. And it gets people to start and stop and start and stop, but not sustain. Most people, I mean, a minority of people do stay motivated and stick with it, but it's really a small minority of the population.
0: Have you heard of the book, The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin? I have. So yeah, like just for the listener who isn't familiar, we ha- she was a podcast guest a couple months ago, but basically there's, she, she defines there's like four types of people based on how they are motivated, whether they're motivated by external, by internal, by both, or where they are like a rebel and they can't be motivated by either internal or external. So I think that for a lot of people, they like, some people think, well, I just make, want to make a change and then I do it. And then they want, and then there's other people where they just can't make themselves do it. And just understanding where you fall in that, that area is so helpful. You know,
1: I also think it's important to understand that it's, it, it is beyond what in general motivates us as individuals, because unfortunately, we've been socialized, educated, indoctrinated, you know, I'm going to use the fourth word brainwashed, um, (laughs) to be motivated to change our behavior for certain reasons, certain Mm -hmm. goals. And the, the primary reasons that most people initiate behavior, regardless of what kind of personality trait they might have, research shows are not, potent enough to drive lasting change. So that's why we always have to bring it back to how we've been socialized to Mm. think about and approach,
0: you know, behaviors like exercising and healthy eating. So how do we do that? How do we find the reason why we should make a change and stick to that change? So, well, the
1: first thing people have to understand is that it's not their fault that these reasons that they've been approaching lifestyle changes don't cultivate lasting high quality motivation. So that's the first step always, because otherwise people are going to blame themselves and think, I'm just not athletic enough. I'm not disciplined enough. It's so far beyond that. So that's the first stage. The second stage is understanding that there's a reason in our daily lives what we want to help people connect with is a very relevant benefit that people are going to experience in the now when they do a behavior. So if someone wants to exercise more, we want to help them identify, well, what what's your immediate feel-good reason? And then we probably have to educate people that you know physical activity boosts mood, reduces depression and anxiety, reduces stress. So we want to get people to experiment with an a daily immediate benefit they're going to get. And, you know, if we shift to healthy eating, sometimes people say, well, I feel better when I eat the cookie instead of the kale. And on a, in your mouth taste level, that's one type of experience that people might have. But the question is, well, how do you feel if you eat four of those cookies and how do you feel 10 minutes later, 30 minutes later, you know, the next morning? So what we want The part of the solution is we want to get people to start noticing the experiences they have when they make a certain choice and when they don't. And we want to shift the conversation away from long term, distant goals that also might have a lot of baggage around it, like weight loss, to the immediate benefits that people want.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like curiosity is a really important part of behavior change. Totally. It's a
1: key ingredient and it's not not an ingredient that most people have been taught about. The other key ingredient to sustainable behavior change is we want to actually educate people how our brains work and what science shows leads to lasting change. So we don't just want to give people strategies. We actually want to help them understand the science behind why they haven't been successful to date. And what, especially what emerging science suggests, we need to stick with it long-term.
0: So what is kind of missing right now in the, the general narrative around behavior change? Because you just mentioned the, how the science changes. Right. Well, first,
1: I think I have two different directions I want to go on right now. I think before I answer your question, I want to say that There is a very popular behavior-trained strategy that people think should be applied to healthy eating and exercise, and that's habit formation. There's a lot of popular books about it. It sounds like a no-brainer. Yes, if we can offload our choices to automatic decisions, you know, we're golden, and in theory, that makes sense. The problem is once we leave the theoretical realm and enter the you know, real life, habit formation for complex behaviors like healthy eating and exercise um, doesn't really pan out for most people. And so that's the first thing I want to say is there's a lot of assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that there's science showing that habit formation actually drives sustainable change. But there's really very little evidence that it does, even for simple behaviors like mm-hmm. habit Like flossing. So that's really important is just because something sounds like it makes sense doesn't necessarily mean that there's evidence underneath it. And, you know, I get concerned when a lot of people start using a strategy if there's not a lot of evidence. Or if there's even reasons supporting that it may not work. For example, if we're talking about habit formation for healthy eating, you know, habit formation is based on a habit loop, which has three parts, a cue, behavior, and a reward. Reward, let's focus on that. Um, In order for our brains to kind of learn that habit loop, we've got to feel rewarded by it. But if you think about most, a lot of times when people change their eating behaviors, it's because they're trying to lose weight. And there's often very negative experiences and feelings built into that. Um, besides being a, be- uh, a type of a behavior, it's not just acute behavior reward. There's planning and there's being at the grocery store and there's learning recipes and there's cooking. And there might be pushback from family. So in a way you can see how a behavior like that doesn't fit in this three-part um, habit loop. So that's the first part of the answer is that we need to th- we need to think more critically about what we've been taught might lead to lasting change. I mean, I, lo- I do have a flossing habit and it works for me, but that's a simple behavior that happens in the bathroom that doesn't have a lot of disruption potential. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm going to shift. Well, let me stop. Do you want to have any conversation about that before we talk about other things.
0: Yeah. I think that you mentioned earlier that sometimes we are want, we want some immediate satisfaction when we're trying to change our behavior. And you talked about eating, I think you said pizza or kale, and you might've said a different type of, was it pizza that you used? It was cookie, a cookie. cookie. I'm like, just trying to think of things that <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah. Um, yeah. And then using that curiosity to decide, well, okay, the second I put it in my mouth, it might be really awesome. But then later, I might not feel as good. Or I might even know how I might not even know how I feel afterwards because I've never even tried the kill or the healthy thing before. And maybe like that level of self awareness of how do I feel becomes something that has to become a habit to form because you don't ever even check in on that we have not been taught to check in on how we
1: feel from our choices both exercise and eating and so you're absolutely right i mean, curiosity is you know king and queen we absolutely need to appreciate the value of that it's a positive emotion positive emotions expand our thinking expand our moods you know so we have to understand that and you know, think about what a, what a mindset shift that is from, I should do this. I shouldn't do this to, hmm, how does this feel? What, why, why might I try this? My, why, hmm, do I like this or not? You know, many years ago, I think, I don't even know, probably like seven years ago, after my first book came out, I remember being interviewed about this for a worksite well-being group. And, you know, I talked about the fact, they asked me, like, what do we need to do on on an organizational level to help our employees take better care of themselves? And I said, you want to get them curious about why they should bother thinking about this as a priority. I mean, the reality is, is that the other part of this is we cannot think about changing any behavior outside of the context of our crazy, hectic lives. And to do so is really... To set individuals up for failure. It's to set organizations up for failure because, you know, the hubbub that our behaviors have to survive within on a daily basis is a part of the behavior change process. And so we need to think about that as we think about why are we going to get people curious? How do we persuade them that this is something that is deserving of their curiosity and attention?
0: Yeah, you talked about eating and you said that. Um, The Q behavior reward is not enough to make lasting behavior change because it's really complex. And you mentioned a bunch of different pieces that are involved with eating healthily. And that is something that's really challenging for most people. And even people who say healthy eating is a value, whenever we get busy, one of the first things to go is healthy eating. So with the complexity of that, how do people or how should people approach setting an appropriate goal or quote habit around healthy eating? Right. So I'm really into helping people use,
1: let's get, let's use precision when we think about what we're after. And if we want change that's sustainable, and that's always been my focus for the last 30 years. So let's, I'm assuming anyone who's listening, they don't just want to change their behavior and stop. Ideally, they'd sustain it. Well, what does that take? Let's get really precise. It takes choices and decisions that consistently support your greater goal. So consistency, not not identical choices. We're talking about consistent in some way, shape, or form that support our goals. Well, again, there's two ways to do it. We can have choices that are on automatic pilot, which, as we've already talked about, isn't going to work for complex behaviors for most people. It does for some. Something always works for some. So we've got to keep that in mind. but the alternative for a lot of people who just don't have the personality trait or or life, daily life context that can support that, we need an alternative. So what's an alternative to consistent decision-making while well, our executive functioning? The way our, our this innate um, decision system of our brain that exists, right? So how do we want to support our brain? And to do that, we have to understand the science behind and what that consists of. So, in the lifestyle literature, um, working memory, cognitive flexibility, and inhibition are discussed as the three primary executive functions. In other literatures, you know, in management and ADHD literature, uh, you know, there's different, there are more executive functions that are discussed. But in the eating literature specifically, there's three. So, working memory is this transitory capacity where we can hold and work with one or two pieces of information. It's super limited, but that's part of effective decision making is working with the information in our mind. The other component of that is thinking flexibly, being able to pivot on a dime when all of a sudden our plans can't work out. Now planning is important. I mean you're a you're a health coach you understand how this works you're an athlete planning Is an important part of sustainable change. You have to know when it's going to happen, or it probably isn't going to happen because something else is going to take over. The deal is is that if we're going to have consistent choices, then we need to understand how to navigate when our plans go awry. So that's the alternative path, if you will, to the consistent decisions that underlie sustainable change. And to do that, we need to understand how to support our decision making at that moment. So we want to have simple things that we can call um, into our brains. And as you know from reading my book, um, I developed the POP decision tool, you know, this simple acronym, POP, we're gonna pop our plan, it can't work. So instead of doing nothing, let's do something. So let's pop it and open up our options. Let's pause. Research shows that taking a few deep breaths actually supports our working memory, helps us focus, which is what we need in these moments that our plans go awry unexpectedly then when we harness our attention we move on to the second step with it which is open up our options and play now why is play there because we want to generate options that are, are alternatives to the plan that we had created and let's being playful as a positive emotion let's expand our thinking, which research shows will help us generate creative options to the alternatives. And then the third part is pick the joy choice. Let's, instead of trying to, inhibition is the third uh, executive function that I talk about in the book. And it's, you know, very focused on teaching people this, the science is very geared towards teaching people how to inhibit themselves from not having what they want and from, you know, doing what they don't want to do or inhibit, you know, the, the alternative the sh- from the should. And I don't, first of all, the research doesn't suggest that that's a, that that works once people leave the laboratory. So I think we need to stop thinking about how to inhibit ourselves and start thinking about how to get us to desire to do what we actually say we want to do, and that's where the third part of the POP decision tool comes in. It's pick the joy choice. And why do we call it the joy choice? Well, it's the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. It's the antidote to the all, to all or nothing thinking. And when we do something instead of nothing, guess what? That is, it's consistency. That's what underlies consistency. So, you know.
0: I'm going to stop there and see if you have any questions. Cause I know I just kind of said a lot. Well, I'm loving it because all the things that you're talking about are things that I also just love talking about. And I think are so important. So I'm just going to summarize what you said really quick for the listener So executive functioning plays a huge role in behavior change, and it comes down to three things, to cognitive flexibility, to working memory, which is difficult because you can only hold a couple of things in there at the same time. So whenever that gets flooded, it's really hard to make a good decision. And then inhibition. Whenever we tell ourselves that we can't do something, it's harder and and it feels restrictive and it's harder for us to make a good choice instead of focusing on what we can do and what is something that would be beneficial so that we can do something instead of nothing that will help us move in the direction that we want to go, but not worrying about being perfect about it.
1: Exactly. You, you did such a good job. You know, when we feel like we should do something, you know, I shouldn't do that. We inherently want to rebel against that. So <laughs> if we're in an inhibition mindset, if that's the mindset or the belief system that we have going into a behavior change we are most likely in the research very, you know, strongly suggests we're going to rebel against it. So the other thing that is a shift in belief system, we, when it comes to healthy eating and exercise, because they're intertwined inextricably with weight loss and all the junk that comes with that, part of it is you do it right or not at all. The stake the stakes are high. You come to any eating decision and you're like, oh no, I really want that, but I'm not supposed to have it. The stakes always feel high. And that also sets people up, but it creates this all or nothing situation. And research shows that when people come to these, especially, well, both for eating and exercise, but I'll just talk about eating for a sec. When we come to, let's say, a weekend or a party, when we come to a food choice with what's called flexible restraint, there's that word flexibility, instead of, I've got to do it right. I've got to stick to the plan. (sighs) Research shows that we're more likely to actually create the consistent decision-making that we're after and, and even better able to sustain weight loss. Now, I think the research strongly suggests across many areas that even if you want to lose weight, you want to shift your mindset away from that because there are so many programs of research that would suggest that weight loss is this goal that is going to get you to focus on the wrong things. And so what we want to do is shift to our daily quality of life, our sense of well-being, our energy level, which is kind of circling us back to why when people initiate behavior with a focus on these other distal long-term outcomes, like health benefits or weight, it doesn't get them focused on what I call the right wise.
0: Yeah. And I mean, weight loss is such a great example. Like you can lose weight by smoking cigarettes. You can lose weight by not drinking water. Like there's a lot of really unhealthy ways to see that number move on this on the scale. But ultimately, if you're trying to lose weight, you're probably after trying to be healthier and trying to feel better. And what are the daily actions you can do instead of, and, and then you get an immediate benefit instead of looking at this number on a scale or this thing that's way out in the future, that's going to be harder to stay motivated to do.
1: Absolutely. And it's demotivate. I mean, You know, and then when you don't get the results you're after or there's a pause, people get very discouraged. And, but, you know, it's kind of ironic that if you let go of that and focus on the other reasons that research would suggest would be more motivating deeply with, and help us get at that intrinsic motivation, that we're going to keep up the behaviors that underlie what you know, ultimately some people feel that they can't let go of. But when people are able to even temporarily pause to focus on how to create these lifelong relationships with healthy eating and with exercise. I mean the other the other important thing which a lot of people talk about is small small us having a really small realistic goal is important. And People always say, well, Michelle, what would that be? You know, healthy eating is this huge, you know, vague thing. And so I'll tell you what I do when I'm working with a client. When I'm working with a client and an eating change, we focus on one point. So if someone is snacking after dinner when they watch TV, the entire focus of our coaching is on the snacking after dinner while watching TV. It's at a certain time point. So we can really dive deep into what are the motivators? What are the barriers? Strategy development, experimentation, curiosity. Because if we want to stick with a behavior for life, let's think about it. I, the word institutionalize. We need to institutionalize it into our psyches and into our context. And if we're going to do that, We've got to give it attention. We, if we're talking about four different goals at the same time, uh, I have to go shopping for that. Now, go if maybe shopping for that is one goal. Let's focus on that and let's focus on preparing and cooking it. But if we're trying to juggle and institutionalize five different things in our lives, you can see, you know, how complex that is. And again, why we may be able to start it and and do it for a couple of weeks. But boom, eventually something unexpected is going to get in the way and we we don't have the mental bandwidth to or wherewithal to navigate
0: five different complex goals. Yeah, so the joy choice is what is there to help us make a decision whenever we do get bombarded with a bunch of different things so that we can still make a decision that leads us in the direction that we want to go and that is also in alignment with these It sounds like you're alluding to like, what is the value behind this goal that we're setting? Absolutely. And, you know, people ask me all the time, why do I call it the joy
1: choice? And the reason I call it the joy choice is, I mean, there's two core reasons. There's more than two, but the two, one reason is the joy choice as the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing, the mouthful means success. Like it helps us succeed. Joy. Yay. Like happiness we are successful when we choose it that's number 1 but that's more logistical that's a logistical benefit the other benefit is that when we align with and support our greater goals and values and you know whether we're wanting to move more and eat in different ways because we want to take better care of ourselves for ourselves or we want to take better care of ourselves or, and, or we want to take better care of ourselves because we know when we do take better care of ourselves, we have more energy and enthusiasm for the people and projects we care most about. When we pick the joy choice and do something, we are staying on that consistency path and aligning ourselves with our goals, which are about fueling ourselves for our lives and the things we care most about. And that is a deeper type of joy. That's a joy that kind of is a heartfelt joy. And so that's why I called it the joy choice. And we need more than just to be told it's important to be flexible. A lot of programming and behavior change approaches, rightfully so, teach People that it's important to be flexible when you get to these and not get stuck in all or nothing thinking, but in daily life, in life in general, we need to shift. All of us in behavior change have to shift from theory in science, which is really important and informs what we're doing, but we have to to take it to the next step and become marketers. And we have to figure out what to call things. We have to figure out how to talk to people in ways that are going to engage people's hearts, because that is what gets consumer loyalty. And that's how we need to be thinking as
0: behavior change professionals. So my question with the pop decision tool, like I like the word because it implies that you have autonomy, that you are taking control of imperfect situation maybe, but the pause part I think is really hard for a lot of people, especially if the behavior that they're trying to work on is something that's been deeply ingrained. So how do people learn how to pause and then how to actually be open after that?
1: So, and that's a really important question like anything that might be automatic on the automaticity scale something we're used to that's deeply ingrained that we want to change you're not going to immediately get the pause you're not going to immediately have awareness you know it's no different than if you have a reaction to a child who maybe says something disrespectful and your automatic go to is i'm showing you what my automatic go to is <laughs> is don't speak to me like that now that's not a helpful thing to say, it might be an important thing to say, but is it really going to get me what I want? So I have to notice whether we're talking about eating or parenting or something else or a friend conversation, I have to notice. And it takes time to realize it. And the first few times we intend to pause, it's going to go right past us. And in fact, that's why popping is the first thing we have to remember. We want to pop our plan. And in fact, I use pop for beyond when things go awry. I use it when I'm stressed out because I want to pop that stress and come up with something more adaptive for myself. So that's the first thing we want people to remember isn't the pause, but the pop, because we are, we are autonomously saying, you know what, this isn't working for me. Pop. So, right. How, how empowering is that, that we are basically undoing something that is either not working or going awry. And then the pop helps us recall the pause. So we're not going to remember it as soon as every time we do it in the beginning. So giving ourselves grace about that and recognizing that like anything, we're not going to get it right the first few times. So, and then eventually when we keep trying, you know, that's why I tell people at the beginning, you know, put up sticky notes, in, a, in some key places to just try to get it into your working memory for a moment before it gets pushed out. We want it to be in our long-term memory so that it's easy to pull out, but we still need to learn how to do it. And awareness is this process that, that just takes time with pausing. And you know, so I know that was a long answer. So let me know if you have any
0: reactions to that. I just have a comment. It's about how you said, pause, but you might not be able to the first few times. And if you don't making sure that you give yourself grace in that moment, because if you're not giving yourself grace in that moment, it's probably going to be even harder to start doing that.
1: It, and that's true. Let me think about it. Whenever we're learning something new, whether it's a language or you know the piano, we don't have the neurological pathways in place. We don't have the coordination in place. So if we don't give ourselves grace, then we're just inadvertently, but also non-optimally reinforcing something that we know doesn't have optimal outcomes. We know that when we judge ourselves negatively, when something doesn't go well, or according to how we hoped it would, it's much less optimal from a motivation perspective than when we do give ourselves grace and self compassion. I mean, that's a science, that's an evidence-based phenomenon, but people still have trouble with it. So again, we may not catch ourselves when we start dissing ourselves for not doing something in the way we hoped we would, but it's a process of learning and we have to be intentional. And, you know, this is where other people can help support the process. And when cultures You know, when an organization starts using, again, precise language about what people are trying to do, what are the challenges that are going to get in the way, what are the reinforcers, it helps keep it in the forefront of our minds so that we can recall it. So, yeah.
0: So I want to get into this other great acronym, TRAP, because all of the elements of that have been interwoven into our conversation so far, and that's a huge part of your book.
1: Yes, so when I got very interested in how to help people make the in the moment decisions, consciously harnessing and supporting their executive functions, I also needed to address the types of typical things that are gonna get in their way. And this is you know, from what I've seen with my decades of coaching people, what are the types of things that tend to get in people's way when they're at this choice point, this challenge to their eating or exercise plan? The first trap is just simple temptation. That word probably resonates with people. It's the visceral feeling we have that we want, that we're tempted to either stay on the couch instead of go out for the run or walk or eat that piece of chocolate cake that's glistening from across the room. (laughs) And that is something that people really experience day in and day out. And we're used to thinking about it as, oh, it's the couch that I want and that's pulling me or the cake that's pulling me. But the new theories about eating and about exercise that are coming out show us that the temptation is not outside and external to us and has power over us. It's actually our brain's memory. It's our memories of the last time we did it and the people we were with and what it felt like. And if we're eating something, the texture and the taste and the smell. And so I think it's very, again, we want to give people the tools and insights based on the latest science that can help them make the choices. I don't even want to say that are going to inhibit themselves, that they make the choices that they decided that they want to make. And instead of saying, oh, I can't have that cake out there, that's actually the wrong focus for our inner conversation. It's, oh, gee, I want that cake because I remember my memory, it might even be subconscious, has all these past experiences with the cake. And oh, isn't that interesting? Here's here's a place for curiosity. Isn't that interesting? So the feelings that I'm having right now aren't really about what's there. It's about my history. And then that means I'm in this place. Do I what do I want to do right now? Given what this is really about. So I, I also think when we, and this isn't my science, but I learned from other scientists, Dan Siegel, for example. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of his work, and, you know, his work with awareness and his writing about it shows that when we bring awareness to the momentary experience, when we name something, when we categorize it and put a label on it, we actually pull ourselves out of part of the emotional brain. And that gives us more control over our action. It takes us out of the automatic part of the brain that that emotion is also embedded within. So that's temptation. The next one is rebellion. And we did, you're right. Everything has been intertwined in our conversation. We rebel against things that we feel we should do you know, when people initiate any change, and again, eating and exercise are often initiated within the context of weight loss. And that's just about the best paradigm to want to rebel against. And so research shows that it's human nature to want to reclaim our freedom when we feel like it's taken away. And when we feel like I should do that and I shouldn't do this, that is, we are absolutely, we feel like Our freedom has been taken away. And so we want to completely shift out of the should paradigm. And um, I talk about how to do that a little bit. And then there's accommodation. That's the third trap, right? Temptation, rebellion, accommodation. And this is a slightly different type of decision trap. This has to do with whether our own self-care, our own needs to take care of ourselves. And we could say through meditation, through getting enough sleep, through healthy eating exercise are as important as our need to take care of other people in in certain ways. And so the story I tell is of a client who was changing her eating and she was really happy with how she felt with the plan. And then she went on this holiday weekend with friends and her friend, you know, came and offered, it was like an offering of this special food that her friend had made She didn't feel tempted. She didn't feel rebellious, but she felt like she needed to accommodate her own eating plan for the need to have her friend feel like she was being taken care of. And so she ate it. She felt terrible. She felt, and she went into a downward spiral. So accommodation, it's important to accommodate the needs of others. But if we do it all the time, then we are putting ourselves at risk and so i talk a lot about that in that chapter and then the last one is maybe the one that most people will resonate with which is perfection the p in trap and it's it is so deeply ingrained when it comes to exercise and in changing our eating in certain ways that it just sets most people up to feel like failures all or it's all or nothing thinking is our exercise plans and our healthy eating plans are wrapped up in this all or nothing package. And when we can't do it, we've been trained to just go do nothing, feel like failures, judge ourselves. Of course, that makes us stop. And until the next time we start, but it's always within these same paradigms. And so again, looking to what the science on awareness says When we can name these things at these points of decision, which is one of the reasons why we pause, we need to pause to have a space to actually say, oh, there's accommodation. Oh, and then when I can name it, like Dan Siegel says, I can tame it. And then we can refocus to move on to the next step.
0: Yeah, there's so many nuanced questions that I could ask from that great summary that you gave, but with, I'll go to the perfectionism one. I think defining what success looks like from the behavior that you're trying to change and perfection should not be the answer to that. But this all, and this also goes back to what you were saying about basically process over outcome, like with weight loss, like, Oh, success is a certain number on the scale. It would be the example of trying to focus on perfectionism, maybe, whereas, you know, focusing on maybe success is my process. Maybe success is like one good decision that I made today and continuing to try to build on that.
1: That is exactly right. And research shows that focusing on process will lead to better outcomes across life arenas and behaviors. So again, I think the ship is starting to turn because the stakes are too high for individuals, organizations, healthcare, We know that perfection and focusing on outcomes doesn't work for most people. And so if we want to achieve and sustain the outcomes that we're really after, we have got to change the way we see this so that we start doing it differently.
0: I think that the, one of the reasons that we get so fixated on outcomes is that it's really easy to measure and it is kind of black and white. Like you won the race or you didn't win the race, or you got this number on the scale or this grade, or you didn't. And process is harder to measure because it requires that you pause maybe multiple times a day, maybe once a day to see, am I doing this? Am I not doing this? And it's harder to quantify that success.
1: It is from the outside, right? It's not is concrete as a number on a blood pressure cuff or winning the race or coming in last. But once we start again, it's a, it's learning something new, you know, if, so I, I think the word grace just has been coming up again and again. It, I never used the word grace really before I started work. I started working on the book and working with my clients and giving talks about it because in order to learn something new, whether we're kids or grown-ups, it's hard. It's challenging, but if we can come to this new project with curiosity and and a desire to experiment and learn from it and without any there's no success or failure when you're learning. And again, this goes straight to Carol Dweck's work, right? With a fixed versus growth mindset. If we understand and appreciate the science really is unequivocal when it comes to the benefits of a growth mindset when it, for persistence and that's what we're after we're after consistent decision making we're after persistence and then when we know that and we know that the process for success not the outcome of success but the process of success is making some choice, the perfect and perfect choice that keeps us on a trajectory of consistency, then, you know, that's a different paradigm. And and when more people start talking about it, when you're, you're talking about it on your podcast and you're talking about it with your clients and the more people that start talking about it, not perfection not all or nothing not trying to do something that most of us can't do like put our exercise on autopilot some people can always important to say some people can but what we care about is what the majority of the people can do then we can kind of be happy because there is science-based systems and strategies and processes that we can look to that will get us where we're trying to go
0: I want to talk about the accommodation piece. Cause I think that's really hard for a lot of people because we want, like you said, we want other people to feel good and we'll put other people's needs before our own needs. And that even goes so far as damaging, potentially damaging our health. Like an example I'll give is drinking, say I, you don't want to drink, or you're just trying to drink maybe like one drink a week or something. And your friend's when, when they want to go out and do stuff, it's, it's a drinking situation. It's a social drinking situation. So you go and then they're like, well, why aren't you drinking? And we're, we're, we're drinking. And then if you don't do what they're doing, then they feel judged by you, even though you're not even judging them. So there's like this really complex social, almost tribal thing where we want to fit in and we want to belong. But if we're doing something that is against or just not even the same as what our peers are doing, then we look different. So how do you like, Reckon with that. That's such a great
1: question. So I think I think drinking is a little more complicated because we don't know. I mean, I guess you're talking about the social aspect because you know we don't want to go. Addiction is a whole different conversation that we want to make sure that that necessitates a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. So I just want to state that. But if we're talking about the social part, like my client, you know, eating what her friend gave her because she wanted to be a part of it. You know, there's courage involved too. And I think having conversations with people explicitly saying, you know, right now I'm working on something because uh, it's important to me. You can tell them your reason or not. You can say, you know, I feel like I don't want to drink as much as I was doing before. I wasn't feeling good. I was losing energy. You know, you can go into the details, or you can choose to just kind of keep it vague. But I, I think when P- you can prevent people feeling judged by ex- saying from the get-go, even before you guys go, Hey guys, you know, a little, a text group text, just wanted to let you know that, you know, I'm, I've decided I'm going to drink less. So tonight, you know, or, or you can say it in a text or you can say it in person. I think it's really helpful. Or you can just decide, you know what? I'm not going to own how people feel. If they feel judged, that's their stuff. I'm just going to drink, you know, my bubbly water or my bubbly water with the lime, what, whatever it is. Or, or, It's not to say it's not challenging because <laughs> this tribal, our tribe, our family, friends, community, you know, our connection with people is among the most core motivator for humans, core motivators. And we know that, but I think name it to tame it and strategize ahead of time. That's what I would suggest in that scenario.
0: Yeah. Food and drink is just something that is so ingrained in, in us to fit in and belong. And it's just really challenging whenever you're doing things different than your friends. But as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, if they feel now you're you're other you're different because you're doing something different than us maybe looking for a value that is similar between you two and maybe it's not expressed in food or drink but coming together on something like that so that you don't feel like you're other or they don't feel like you're other you sure that's an
1: that's an alternative if finding something else that you guys value doing together that can that's a great you know that's a great thing to do but i think Communicating is also going to be helpful because if you just bow out of meeting up with your buddies that you used to do you know, multiple times a week for a drink and you don't explain what's going on, I think people are still going to wonder and, and, and it's going to create tension and uncertainty. So I think sharing what's going on um, is still going to be helpful even when you come up with alternative activities that, that encompass shared values.
0: You've said a number of times like awareness and then naming it to taming it. Dan Siegel's work is really important. Can you tell us about your quiz so that people can develop more awareness? Sure. On my website, I
1: developed a trap quiz so that individuals could, you know, quickly take a a quiz to find out what are my biggest traps. And that's so that when you get to the place where you're feeling tempted or you're pausing so that you can make decision that is aligned with what you really want to do, you can go, Oh, temptation, there it is, or rebellion. Um, so, and they can access that on my website, which is my name, Seeger.com.
0: And you've written another book, No Sweat and also The Joy Choice. Where can people find your work and your books? Both of those are also on my website. The Joy Choice can is,
1: is at many online and in-person bookstores right now. And No Sweat is online too. Um but if they go to my website, there's a book page or
0: there and then within that that's delineated between the two different books. And I hate I almost hate to ask this question because you've done so much great work and right now you're talking about the joy choice, but people always say, well what's next? But instead of saying what's next, I want to ask what's exciting you right now?
1: Wow. <laughs> what is there's so many <laughs> there's so many things that are that's exciting me. Um I'm interested in how do we scale tools so that number one, they can be scaled via algorithms that many people can use at the same time. So designing digital health products through algorithms that respect what the emerging science says we need to help people learn. That's something I'm really excited about. I'm excited about how we help clinicians learn learn to communicate in ways with their patients that hook into the right whys and the right ways. Again, when I say right, it's not that there's any singular right one. It's whatever's right is what is going to work for an individual and what, and we can best get there by knowing what the science says doesn't work and life, you know, decades of experience that individuals have says doesn't work and what emerging science says, the new directions that we need to go, in, go into.
0: Well, thanks so much for sharing your enthusiasm and your knowledge and all of your experience with us today. And I'm excited for people to pick up your book and learn more about your work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. You asked really good
1: questions.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show because that helps it find others and helps others on their journey to be their best. Big shout out and thank you to those of you who have supported my work or who are currently supporting my work on Patreon or donating via PayPal. You can find both of those at sonyalooney.com slash podcasts and also patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney Show. Any donation that you make to the show goes to Kay Roma, my incredible audio engineer, and my assistant, Rebecca, who make sure that this podcast is professional and well done. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.